Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Bethnal Green service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So firstly, you diss my beard, and secondly, you say, if the talk's going to be boring, just fill in a giving envelope. So if the offering is very high, I'm going to take that as a negative comment on my talk. Well, it's great to be, it was great to be with you. Um, it, it really, happy Christmas. Happy 9th of December. Are we, are we feeling Christmassy yet? Okay, that's good, that's good. I'm, I'm getting there, I'm getting there. The smell of mulled cider does help, I have to say. Um, I, I love Christmas. I, eat, I love most things about Christmas. Um, I do have one part of the Christmas story that I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with. And the reason is... It all goes back to an experience I had when I was seven years old. I was on a school trip. Uh, it was the middle of summer, not at all Christmas-related. And uh, for some reason, at some point in the trip, um, three guys who were basically the school bullies, they sidled up to me and um, <laughs> separated me from the pack and surrounded me. And one of them got up close to me and he went, Oi, I've got a question for you. And I'm like, I don't think this is going to go well. <laughs> so, Please be multiple choice, like, desperately. <clears throat> so he's like, I've got a question for you. Are you a virgin? Wow. <laughs> wow, yeah, yeah. Not the question I expected either. What? I mean, to be fair, it was multiple choice, but I, the problem was, I didn't know what the choices were. I was seven years, I know now what a virgin is. At the time, seven years old, I hadn't got a clue. I was I don't know. I literally don't know what that word means. So I'm desperately trying to figure this out. Like, what does it mean? What does it mean? And I realize the only frame of reference I have for the word virgin is the Christmas story, right? The Virgin Mary, round yon virgin. I'm now 34. I know what the word virgin means. I have done for quite some time. Still not a clue what the word yon means, but there we go. So I'm like, ah, the Virgin Mary. Okay, that helps. And then I realized actually just knowing that she was a virgin didn't help because I still didn't know what the word actually meant. Because parents kind of gloss over some of the details, don't they? When they're telling you as kids bits about the Christmas story, they paint the nice big picture. When it gets to the details, this sort of just shift off them a little bit. Like, how did God get inside this woman's tummy and how do babies usually get inside there and it's suddenly like ah look stables with cute animals <laughs> and, and like three men with presents and despite the fact all year round we're told not to go near strange men with presents suddenly it's just a helpful distraction from the birds and the bees so I, I had no idea what the word virgin meant but then I had a breakthrough I realized ah the story talks about the Virgin Mary. It doesn't talk about the virgins, Mary and Joseph. A virgin must be something that only a woman can be. Again, I know now, so no need to educate me. But I thought, I got it. What they're trying to do is get me to confess to being something that only a girl can be so they can mock me for being a girl, and I'm not having that. So I stood as tall and as proud as you can when you're seven years old, and I went, me, a virgin? No. That was a mistake. <laughs> the entire journey back to school, I was surrounded by a bunch of kids going, Liam isn't a virgin, Liam isn't a virgin, which led to the most awkward conversation with my teacher and my parents. <laughs> and was weirdly the opposite of the chance I heard at secondary school. <laughs> there we go. So I, I still cringe when we sing certain carols. Apart from that, I love Christmas. Now, why did I tell you that story? No, really, anyone, why did I tell you? I tell you that story because I think in a weird kind of way, it illustrates something that I want to reflect on tonight. I think it's really easy for us to know the broad brushstrokes of the 
Christmas story, but then be a little bit hazy on the details. But really, the meaning is in the details. I think it's easy to have a kind of fairy tale, kid-friendly version of the Christmas story, but when you actually think about the details, kind of not, we don't really know them that in depth, or we don't stop and think about them. The meaning's in the details. We need to think about the details. And I want to explore just one little detail tonight, which I think might help us to understand Christmas a bit more. To recap the story, an angel visits Mary and Joseph, well, Mary first of all, and says, you are going to give birth to the Son of God. And then Joseph, who is engaged to her, um, also has an encounter with an angel, um, which reassures him that actually this is the Son of God that she is going to give birth to. And so he decides, being a good man, that he's not going to break off the relationship. Instead, he's going to stand by her. At this point, Caesar Augustus, who rules over the Roman Empire, decides he wants to know exactly how many people he is ruling over. And so he calls a sentence and says that everyone in the Roman Empire needs to go back to the town that their family was from. So the virgins, Mary and Joseph, travel, I'm just rewriting the story, travel to Bethlehem, the city of David, to take part in this census. And at this point, our fairy tale, kid-friendly version of the story kicks in. You can imagine the scene. They're taking this journey on donkey. They decide to make a city break of it. Then they arrive and they get to the first hotel, knock on the door, any rooms. The guy looks down the list. He says, no, sorry, uh, you didn't pre book, did you? And then they have an argument about why Joseph didn't pre-book an Airbnb and all this sort of stuff. And then they go from door to door to door, just a row of hotels for some reason. And at each one, there's a little kid who just goes, <laughs> no room at the end. And they go on to the next one, the next one, the next one, the next one. Finally, they get to one and they plead with the guy and he says, there are no rooms. I'm sorry, they're all taken. But we do have a stable out the back with the animals. I guess you could sleep in there. And so we picture something like this. And that's where our minds go when we think about the Christmas story. Problem is, that doesn't really make a lot of cultural or historical sense. You see, Joseph was an ancestor of David, and David was Israel's greatest king, the most popular king in all their history, and he's traveling to the city of David. Are you honestly telling me that an, a, a, a descendant of Israel's most popular king in the city of David cannot find a place to stay? I don't think so. Cultural memory in a place like this is long-lasting. It's powerful. They would have opened doors and let him in. This came home to me a few years ago when I was in Dublin uh, with a team who'd gone to film a documentary about Arthur Guinness, the creator of Guinness, the, the drink. And um, uh, he was an incredible man. And he actually created Guinness as a way of dealing with some of the social problems of the day caused by over-drinking gin. And he and the Guinness Foundation did amazing work in Dublin. He's like their, their treasured favorite son of the city. And we went to go and do a documentary that I was fronting. And we found that everywhere we asked uh, to film, they just opened their doors to us because we were celebrating their favorite son, right? So we would go to uh, the Guinness factory and they're like, yeah, sure, come on in, pour some pints. It was wonderful. It was really great. I'd highly recommend it. Just say you're going to film a documentary about Guinness. You can pour as many pints as you want. We went to the cathedral. That's a joke. We went to the cathedral, uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral. We said, any chance we can film? They're a bit like, mm, I don't know. We're doing a documentary about Arthur Guinness. Come right in. They were like, just welcoming us in. In England, you'd have to go through months of paperwork to get that kind of access. We got in a taxi and this guy was driving us around he said, what are you doing? We said, we're filming a documentary about Arthur Guinness. He was like, oh, I've got to show you this. He took us on a detour and showed us places where he and his family had gone to get food parcels growing up. And he told us about how much he loved the work of Arthur Guinness and his family. I mean, thinking about it, he might have just been trying to hike our fare. But, um, but everyone had a story to tell. 
we actually interviewed a lady named Michelle Guinness, who is part of this family tree. And she told the story about being in Dublin one day and breaking the heel of her shoe. And she went into a cobbler's and said, any chance you can fix it? The guy said, sure, it'll be 24 hours. She said, can you do it any quicker? He said, no, 24 hours. So she agreed and she paid and she went to give her details. And the guy looked at her name and said, come back in an hour, we'll have it done. Why? Because cultural memory is powerful. Are you honestly telling me that Joseph from the bloodline of David, going to the city of David, can't find somewhere to stay. That doesn't match up for me. What's more, we know that Mary actually had relatives in the area. If you read Luke chapter 1, you find that she's already spent three months staying with Elizabeth and Zechariah in the hill country not far outside. They had plenty of people they could stay with. What is going on? What's more, this was what is known as an honor-shame culture. That is a culture where you do things that bring honor on yourself and on your community and you avoid anything that might bring shame upon you and your community. In a place like this, pregnant women were highly respected. There is no way any self-respecting innkeeper would let a pregnant woman be out in the cold. That will bring shame upon them. The story doesn't seem to make sense. Here's the absolute killer. The absolute biggest problem with the story. Luke says, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Here's the problem. There were no inns in Bethlehem. Like historians tell us there was not a single commercial inn in Bethlehem. So this idea of Mary and Joseph knocking on a hundred hotel doors only to be told there was no room, they had to sleep in the stable with the animals, doesn't seem to make sense. In fact, the passage doesn't even mention a stable. So what is going on here? Well, if you're of a particularly sceptical bent, maybe you're thinking, great, a preacher has just proved my point, the Bible is full of errors. Luke just made it up. Actually, I don't think that's what is going on at all. The meaning is in the details. And to explore this a little bit, I need to get architectural on you. Can I have the next slide? I'm clearly not an architect. <laughs> the, average, the average peasant home in the Middle East at this point would have been made up of two main rooms. You would have the family room, or sorry, the family room here and the guest room. The guest room would either be at the end or on top of the building. The Greek word for it, incidentally, is katalima. That will be relevant later. And this is where you would put up people who came to your house. The rest of it was made up of the family room. And this was the largest part, and it would be where basically all of family life took place. You would live there, you would eat there, you would cook there, you would sleep there. And at the end of it, it would slope all the way down, and there would be drop of a couple of feet and stairs going down the side. And in this bottom section here on the left, there would be a door so you could bring the animals in. And the animals would come into the house around nighttime for warmth and for security. And the, the floor of the family room was sloped down to this point so that actually at the beginning of every day, you would let the animals out, then you'd be able to sweep down into this bottom section, clean it out, and use that as an extension of your family space. And at the bottom of the sloped section of the family room, you would have these grooves that were kind of dug into the floor, which would be about head height for the animals, and you would fill it with the hay and the straw, and it was known as the manger. Do you see where I'm going with this picture? So this is the kind of home that any normal person will have lived in in this time, uh, at the time of the first Christmas. Now Luke says there was no room in the inn, or there were no rooms in the inn, we often hear it as. The problem is there were no inns in Bethlehem. 
But actually, if you look at the words Luke uses, it tells a different story. Because the word translated room is topos, which doesn't mean a room, it means space. And the word translated in is katalima, guest room. So the picture is not saying that Mary and Joseph traveled around 100 hotels and couldn't find any rooms available they should have booked ahead. Rather, it is saying that Mary and Joseph arrived at a normal family's house but the room that was set aside for guests was already overflowing with people. But rather than turning them away, this family said, come into our midst. We will bring you into this chaotic, full family room, already packed with people and animals, and you can live and stay here. This is a picture of a family inviting Mary and Joseph right into their midst to give birth there. And Jesus would have been laid right here in the manger in the midst of a family. Now, why is this important? Because I guess you'd be pretty disappointed if you got that on a Christmas card. But I think it's important because it tells us something powerful about the Christmas message. When God chose to enter human history, he didn't do so in the most luxurious way. He didn't allow his son to be born in a palace. Instead, he chose two unknown individuals in a backwater town of an oppressed empire. He didn't send his son into a place of luxury to give him a good start in life. (laughs) He was born in obscurity, in the home of a random family whose names we do not even know to this day. Maybe it was family members of Joseph and Mary. Maybe it was just a stranger who invited them in. We do not know. But we do know that a family opened up their homes and their life to him and said, come and be part of this chaotic family room. Come and be part of our lives. There is place for you here. And there, the greatest miracle of all time took place. God took on flesh in a random family's living room. It's incredible. And you've got to ask, well, why did God do this? Well, what does Luke say next? He says, there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around and they were terrified. But the angel said, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all mankind. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Here's something you need to know about shepherds. They were not popular people. Historians have found five lists that the religious leaders put together of trades that were considered um, uh, dishonorable trades. Shepherds are on three of the five lists. They were thought of as being unclean, untrustworthy. They had a reputation for being violent and aggressive, unpleasant people. They were kept on the fringes of society. So imagine their surprise when angels turn up and said, the king has come and you are going to be the first ones to meet them. What would they have felt? Would they have felt excited? Probably terrified? Almost definitely. Because if the king has arrived, chances are he's going to be in a palace, right? And people like this would never be welcome in a palace. But the angel continues, this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. This is a game changer. Because the king has come, not to a palace that was out of bounds for them. The king has come to an average peasant family house quite possibly literally born in a shepherd's house and laid in a manger as their very own children would have been. And Luke puts these two stories together for a reason. You know, Luke doesn't talk about the wise men. Matthew talks about them. He focuses on the shepherds because he wants you to know that God didn't come just for the elite. 
God didn't come just for those who are the religious types, who think they are worthy of him. God came for everyone with a message of peace and joy for all mankind. And he came to the people who thought they would have no chance of seeing God. And he not only came to them, he came in a manner that they could access. He came to meet them exactly where they were at, in a family room of a peasant family house. When God was scouting for a venue to launch his great unveiling, he didn't choose a luxurious palace. He chose a normal, everyday, unimpressive, messy, chaotic, crowded living room of a family whose names we don't even know to this day. And God took on flesh in their living room. The divine broke into the everyday. The miraculous invaded the mundane. Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it like this. No priest, no theologian stood at the cradle of Bethlehem. This didn't look like a sacred space. It didn't seem, it didn't smell like a holy moment. There was no priest, there was no theologian, no religious types there. And yet... all Christian theology finds its beginning in the miracle of miracles that God became human. This moment is unparalleled in human history. Time has literally been divided around this moment, BC and AD, before Christ and Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. And every great event in human history finds its meaning in relation to this moment. This Christmas is the 50th anniversary of a world-changing Generation-defining moment. In 1968, the Apollo 8 mission went into space. I'm sure you've seen the picture, the next slide. A very famous picture known as Earthrise. You know, for many years, we had got used to seeing uh, with our own eyes, let alone in pictures as well, the rising of the sun or the rising of the moon. For the first time, Christmas 1968, we got to see it from heaven's perspective, looking down on Earth instead. (coughs) It's a beautiful photo. In it, I think earth just looks so peaceful. It looks so serene. It looks so beautiful. Actually, this was a chaotic year. It was in this very same year that Martin Luther King and Robert F. Kennedy were both assassinated. The Vietnam War was in full swing. The earth was a chaotic place, a volatile place as it remains to this day. Yet perched above it for that moment, these astronauts got to see things the way that no one else had. They were treated for a moment to God's perspective on the earth. And on Christmas Eve 1968, they read out, broadcast to the entire listening world, the words of Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he saw that it was good. And the message of Christmas is that the creator has not given up on his creation. He loves this world. And so despite the chaos that we often bring upon ourselves, he chose to enter into this world so that we might know him and find relationship with him. One year later, 1969, Apollo 11 landed on the moon and there was that iconic moment when Neil Armstrong said those words we're all familiar with, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. You know, as they explored the moon, they left a plaque on its surface. It read as follows. Here, men from the planet Earth first set foot upon the moon. July 1969 AD, we came in peace for all mankind. I don't know about you. I can't hear those words without being reminded of the words that the angels preached to the shepherds. Do not fear. We bring you great joy 
news of great joy and peace for all mankind. This was a world-changing moment. And yet, it really finds its meaning in relation to what happened in that stable or in that family home 2,000 years previously. Do you know how Buzz Aldrin celebrated this moment? We all know Neil Armstrong's phrase. What Buzz Aldrin did was this. He took out a piece of bread that he had brought with him from earth. And he took a small bottle of wine. And he poured the wine into a chalice that he had borrowed from his local church. And as they were sitting there in their spacecraft on the moon, he read the words of Jesus from the Gospel of John. And he ate the bit of bread. And he drank the wine. And he did what Christians have done for thousands of years. He practiced communion. He took bread and wine and celebrated Jesus Christ. And you've got to ask, why would he do that at such a world-changing moment when he is doing what no one else has ever had the chance to do? He's walked off the face of the earth. He has traveled into the heavens. He's walking on the moon. Why did he eat a bit of bread and drink a bit of wine? It's because for him, it all found its meaning in remembering the very same journey that Jesus made for us when he stepped out of the heavens and into the chaos of the earth below. For Buzz Aldrin, this moment became a holy moment. There was no priest, no theologian. It didn't look like a holy moment. It didn't sound or smell like a holy moment. And yet as he took the bread, he remembered that moment when God took on flesh. And as he drank the wine, he remembered the moment where Jesus had his blood spilt for us as he gave up his life to reconcile us to God. Years later, he wrote this. I ate the bread and I swallowed the wine. I gave thanks for the intelligence and spirit that had brought two young pilots to the sea of tranquility. It was interesting for me to think the very first liquid ever poured on the moon and the very first food eaten there were the communion elements. And some of the first words spoken on the moon were the words of Jesus Christ who made the earth and the moon and who in the immortal words of Dante is himself the love that moves the sun and other stars. The coming of Jesus changes everything. It brings meaning to everything. It turns the mundane into the miraculous. And once you have seen that, once you've understood that, once you've experienced that for yourself, it changes everything. It changes your outlook on everything. When you believe that Jesus stepped into this world because he loved you and wants relationship with you, that changes everything. As the carol says, he came down to earth from heaven, who is God and Lord of all. And his shelter was a stable and his cradle was a stall with the poor and mean and lowly lived on earth, our saviour holy. I don't know what you make of Christmas. Maybe for you it's a time of great fun and celebration. I really hope it is. It is for me. I love the festivities of this time of year. Maybe for you it's a time for meaningful reflection. I hope it might be. It certainly is for me. Maybe you enjoy the festivities, but you don't buy the God stuff so much. I understand that. I have been there. I get where you're coming from. Maybe it's a painful time for you a time that reminds you of the areas of your life where you are lacking peace and joy. Let me ask you one question. And I promise, it's not the question I was asked when I was seven years old. (laughs) My question is this. If there is even a chance that the Christmas message is true, 
there is even a fragment of a possibility that there is a God out there who knows you and loves you enough that he would step into the chaos of this world to get relationship with you. If there is even a fraction of a chance that that is true, isn't it worth at least some of your time to reflect on that, to consider it, to explore it for yourself? I have been a follower of Jesus for years now and I can honestly say there is nothing that I have experienced that has given me anywhere near the hope and the joy and the peace that I found in him. Even in the roughest season of my life and there have been plenty of those. Christmas fills me with such a sense of joy and hope and peace because it reminds me that the God of the Bible is not distant and disinterested but he is loving And he runs after us as we heard in that spoken word. He stepped into this world for relationship with him. And his invitation is, will you make space in your life for me? He longs to make home in the chaos of our lives, if only we let him in. So this Christmas, my invitation to you is this. Will you make space for Jesus? (coughs) In the celebration of this Christmas, will you make space for Emmanuel, God with us? The reason for it all in the tensions or the struggles, the relational conflicts that this season often brings, will you make space for the Prince of Peace? In the times of loneliness or chaos, will you make space for the wonderful counsellor, the one who comes to set things right? And if you are sceptical about faith or about God, I understand that. As I say, I have been there. I know what it's like. But my invitation to you is this. Would you at least consider... If there were a God like this, if this were true, and you may not believe it for the moment, but just imagine, would I not want to know a God like that? Would I not want to at least consider it, give it a moment's thought, explore the evidence, just on the off chance he might be there? If we can help you explore your questions, we would love to do that. You will be more than welcome, as Joel has said, to come back at any Sunday in the new year. We're here 5 p.m. every Sunday. You will be welcome wherever you are on your journey of faith. I don't have all the answers by any means, but I would love to chat with you. I'll be at the back. Let's talk over a glass of mulled cider. I would be very happy to do that. I'd love to do that, in fact. Or it may well be that you want something structured to help you. In the new year, we'll be running a course which you may find helpful. The information's not quite finalized yet, but we're running a course called Alpha. We've run it many times before. It's a very helpful course for exploring questions about the Christian faith. Over eight weeks, you will spend a maximum of 22 hours exploring questions about the Christian faith. Don't you think it's worth at least one day of your entire life to consider this great offer of Jesus Christ? Even if you get to the end of 22 hours and say, that's not for me, I think you will have enjoyed the journey nonetheless. I would love to wish you a very, very Merry Christmas. Whatever it holds in store for you, however you feel about Christmas, I hope this is a time of great joy and great peace for you.